morning. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. This is exciting. We're starting a podcast. We are. We don't exactly know what we're doing. First day. <laughs> First day. Bear with us. But we're very excited. We are. No, this is going to be great. We're going to talk about all things end of life and medical decision making. Yeah. And we are also taking comments, questions in the chat. And we have a little bit of renovation going on behind us, so there may be drilling. Which makes it even more fun. Yeah. This is just a practice run anyways. Yes. We'll see if it uh, it goes anywhere. Yeah. So <laughs> what do you like who do you think we're gonna be speaking to? What's our I think audience? mostly our target audience is um, interested family members. I imagine that most people who are starting their journey towards end of life are probably not going to necessarily be touched directly by our podcast, but maybe the people who love them will tune in and have questions um, and need guidance, and that's what we can help with. It's really our passion. I was thinking about it this morning, like in preparation for this, and I was thinking that like you know if you go on a trip you would pack a suitcase you would have some idea about where you're going where you're gonna stay when you get there and it and it all becomes pretty well planned out even if there are a few things that you're gonna do spontaneously and end of life is very similar to that yeah it goes much better when it's planned Mm -hmm. yeah you know when I was having my kids when I was pregnant my son they like consistently asked you like what's your birth plan and we talked about that a lot like okay yeah I want I want to make sure I'm in the hospital or actually I want to be home I want to be at a birthing center and we plan so much for birth but there's not a lot of planning for end of life yeah the opposite but we're gonna help with that I think part of the reason why there's not as much planning is because it's not always really fun to think about that <laughs> and I, I would guess that there are people who are afraid of talking about end of life and there are people who just kind of want to avoid it altogether because it maybe diminishes what they've got going on right now mm-hmm. um, but it is really good to have a plan and we've definitely had experience on both ends of that spectrum people have absolutely no plan and nobody knows what they would have wanted and people who have a very definitive plan and it's written down and it's, you know, and, and everybody who is surrounding them knows what it is. Yeah, we see people on very different spectrums every day. Yeah. In the hospital, outside the hospital, even just in life, having conversations. I mean, I have conversations with my friends all the time and I have one friend that's like, mm-mm, I don't, <laughs> and she's a nurse too. And I'm like, how do you not want to talk about it? But she just shies away. She said no and do all the things I don't I don't want to talk about it just I hope that you know the healthcare people will just take care of it and you know I think that's where you and I come into play is when people don't know it makes it harder not only on the people that are worth caring for but on the healthcare providers as well yeah it's it's I hear it a lot it's a huge misconception oh if we get to a point where things aren't going well just do whatever you think is best and what I think is best may not match what you believe is best for you. So it's good to sort of have an idea about it and 
what we're talking about. And it looks a little bit different for everyone, so then that makes it tricky too, like navigating the process. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about like how your perspective is so unique being a trauma surgeon? I mean, that's pretty... Yeah, um, yeah, so that's my background. I'm a, I'm a general surgeon. I uh, am a trauma surgeon, critical care boarded as well. And so I'm very used to taking care of like the sickest of the sick people. Um, but in my field, many times when I'm encountering a patient, it's unexpected. And everything that we're going to do is, in the beginning, is done fairly urgently or emergently. And that can be perceived as there is no choice. But of course, anytime you're offered anything in medicine, it's there's always a choice involved, even if that's to proceed with the intervention or to not proceed with the intervention. And so part of my job is to ensure, no matter what timeline we're on, that we talk about alternatives to treatment. Um, but, but many times what I find is because it's an unanticipated event, that people are more willing to be aggressive in the beginning and then deal with whatever the outcome is of that intervention. So for example, we, we will take patients who otherwise wouldn't have been a surgical candidate. We would take them to the operating room more often in an unanticipated event while everyone's sort of wrapping their head around what's just happened and then come back together at the table and make decisions for how we move forward. So an example um, would be someone who's um, out for their morning walk and they fall or they get hit by oncoming traffic and then they sustain an injury and that injury needs or has a surgical indication and many times what we find is that families want to go forward with that initial intervention and then that gives them a little bit more time to think and plan about how they want to go from there yeah that's amazing I mean I think it's just so unique to have your background as a trauma surgeon and also understand all of the emotional and mental health components that you're caring for your patients when you're in a crisis mode, but you have to kind of take a pause and think about, you know, what makes sense for this person. Um, did they teach anything about that in med- medical school or in your training? I don't remember having a ton of training for it. In fact, when you're a resident, it doesn't necessarily feel like you have time for any marination in anything. Um, your time is spent either actively working or, you know, asleep. And it's more been experience watching other great mentors perform these tasks, have these family meetings, talk about end of life, and then picking up some tricks of the trade along the way. Like, one of the best interactions I've ever seen was from one of my previous mentors and she sat down with the family and she said 
tell me what you understand about what's going on. And that really opened the floor for them to explain their level of understanding of the situation. And then for her to come in and tweak that understanding and then take it a step further about what we were thinking, what we were planning, and what decisions were on the table for them to make. Mm-hmm. That's really good. Yeah, some of my colleagues I've learned that we use a ask, tell, ask type scenario. So you ask you know, somebody what they understand exactly like your, your mentor did. I'm going to learn that from my mentors in palliative care and really getting to a feel for what has been discussed already. They can reiterate it back and then you can further explain, you know, what these are the options and go line by line. Like this is exactly, you know, what the options are for your treatment. And then they can tell you back what they want to do. Will you tell the audience about your background? Sure. Yes. Hi hi there. (laughs) So my background is actually in an oncology uh, setting. I spent seven years as an oncology nurse. And in that, we see a lot of, you know, opportunities to provide education to patients about what their life looks like as far as how long they're going to be in the hospital, how long their treatment plan is lasting, whether it's curative, whether it's palliative. And what I found is just as a bedside nurse was a true lack of time to spend with your patient and explaining all the different things. So I then shifted into a team um, for palliative that really focuses on patient education and empowerment and sitting down with patients and their and their loved ones to make decisions about what matters to them and what their life will look like with them being at the center of the of the care so that's what I do now and that's what I focus on and have a passion for all things of what matters to people so that's what brought us here today yeah I I just the other day actually had a situation which I think was handled really well um, and your team was involved in that Um, I had a much older gentleman who had fallen and he had a fracture in his jaw and it it turned out that it wasn't going to be operative it was just the type of fracture or bone break that could heal on its own and i think in the beginning of our encounter the family was anticipating that he would need to be admitted to the hospital and The issue that I saw as the physician provider looking at him from afar and into the future was that the hospitalization wasn't going to add anything to his recovery. He had some level of dementia. He was already confused about where he was and why he was in the emergency department. It was loud and he felt like he wasn't being heard. At one point he was getting very angry because no one was able to respond to him and he was repeating himself. He wanted to know what time it was, if we had contacted his spouse, um, when he was gonna be able to go home, what time is it, have you contacted my spouse, when can I go home? And it, 
it was really escalating into anger due to his inability to remember that we had just talked about it and his underlying dementia. Mm -hmm. And your team was able to respond and they came and they sat down with him, his son, his daughter, and his spouse. And together they were able to map out what was really important to him. He liked to have breakfast with the family. He liked to have his coffee time. He looked forward to a small glass of red wine at dinner. He liked to sit in his recliner and watch his favorite show. And it was these pieces of routine that would be immediately lost upon admission. And we often talk about that importance of pattern recognition and like maintaining routine within the home environment for patients who are having dementia-related changes because it, it helps reorient them and it helps their memory. Um, and so we just saw that, you know, you have a nursing team coming in and out of the room at all hours of the night and you have strange noises in a bed you're not used to and you're by yourself in the room and, you know, you don't know where anything is and it's unfamiliar and you wake up and then you can't remember where you are and you don't remember what happened and you're in pain, how that would really translate, how would that possibly lead to recovery? So ultimately, we let him go home, and in the morning, I was able to call them, and he was sitting at the breakfast table having scrambled eggs with his wife. So it was, you know, it was great, like, to have that feeling that, you know, we did something right, and that it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be in the hospital for that right thing to occur. Yeah, and it takes time, right? Like, I mean, that conversation probably took, like, 30 minutes to an hour, probably an hour, so maybe even more. it was more. longer than that. <laughs> it was more, you know, it was more like an hour and a half. Oh, okay. Of, you know, we, we arranged the chairs in a mm-hmm. circle. We had him in a recliner. We... You know, we really set the stage. It was very conversational, mm-hmm. so it wasn't like just bombarding him with questions or the family with questions. It was a lot of storytelling, which I thought was also really beautiful because a lot of the times we don't get to hear, like, mm-hmm. the story of who you are. And, you know, everybody has a life outside. It doesn't, you know, what we see in the hospital is such a small snapshot of who you are and what matters to you. Yeah. I think you're really changing the way that we see healthcare because that was all done for the audience. That was all done in the trauma bay, which can be a very intimidating environment for patients and families to be in. One, just because of the look of it, but you know, even in taking that time to arrange the chairs the way that you did and involve the family and what could be driven by, okay, this is my decision, I'm the surgeon, I'm going to make this decision on what's best for him, you included the family, and made the best plan that worked for everybody. Well, I think you have to, I mean, we didn't talk about it yet, but um, my dad recently passed, and um, we went a palliative route for him, and um his illness and his death were very sudden. Um, the, the whole thing from the, I talked to him on the phone on a Thursday morning 
and by the afternoon my sister was calling me to let me know that he was in the emergency department and he wasn't doing well and I just kept thinking well I just talked to him I he was fine what happened and he just you know didn't feel well he went into like an acute heart failure he wasn't breathing well his heart wasn't pumping well his organs were failing and it was just all so fast and unbelievable and I think we we were given options that would have prolonged his time in the hospital and would have kept him alive in a hospital setting longer but in looking at his case objectively I didn't believe he would ever come home again. I didn't believe he would ever be independent. I believed he would be dependent on oxygen, on nursing level of care. It wasn't something that he would have wanted. He wouldn't have been proud of that. He had lived such a great life um, where the family was really important to him. His grandson was really important to him. All he wanted to do was be able to play and go and he liked eating. You know, he liked, he liked woodworking. Like there were things that he really enjoyed that were active activities. It just never would have been a life for him to sit and be hospital level dependent or nursing level dependent that that would have been unacceptable and so as a family we met with the physician we were offered several interventions that were very aggressive machine driven support so dialysis a balloon pump for the heart things that you know you don't even really know what they are and um and I just looked at him and I said, I, I can't imagine you would want any of this. And he said, I don't. And it was like a very, it was a very real conversation that we were having at that point, but we needed to make decisions. And he didn't f fight it at all. He said he was ready, you know, he was ready. He didn't want to go through any of that and he was ready for the next step which was the transition to a comfort focused care plan where we were no longer looking to do medical interventions we were looking more for just letting him live his natural life which was very short from there and he passed peacefully but he passed peacefully, comfortably, with no machines attached to him, um, and the family all got to come and say their goodbyes, which was also really special. And we have, we have those, we have those final memories of that goodbye, but no final memories of him on a bunch of machines and unable to interact. He was able to interact the entire time up until the end which is incredibly important to me that shows that you upheld his dignity and what he wanted you know to be remembered by and to have those memories of his natural face and yeah it's incredible I think it's 
often the hardest decision we can make is the hardest decision they can make and I hope you know in our conversations and with this information to the world that it can alleviate those burdens that we feel when we make hard decisions like that that we know are the right thing to do it still just feels so heavy and for if we can kind of offload your shoulders and making those decisions it's helping a little bit Well, the greatest way to do this is to know what your loved one would want Mm -hmm. in a situation where there is not opportunity to regain independence. And we really encourage people to have those conversations before the time comes, because then instead of making decisions for your family member, you're just simply communicating decisions that have already been made. So, you know, the, the best way to talk about it is just to say, like, what if? Um, what if you were in a situation where you couldn't feed yourself or you couldn't get dressed on your own or you're not going to be living at home anymore? You're going to be in a facility where someone's caring for you. Are those the types of things that you would want. How does your mm-hmm. team approach mm-hmm. families to have these conversations or to get these conversations started? Yeah, that's a really interesting conversation because we're often the first one, believe it or not. I mean, I'll be talking to people that have lived a very full life and well into their 90s or even hundreds. Like, we're, obviously, life expectancy is is changing and it's increasing as we have more technology and more medical treatment and people are taking care of themselves, they are living longer. Um, What's surprising to our team is that somebody has not broached that subject yet and that's when it's very challenging because we are in the the acute hospital setting. You know, we're not in a doctor's office, we're not home and there are many people that offer these conversations at home, which is ideal, but I think it needs to start with the your internal family, those that are closest with you, and then you can relay that information. But when somebody has not had that conversation, then we politely ask for permission first with the patient. Is this okay that we talk about it? Have you talked about this? Um, Then we invite, you know, ask for permission for those who are in the room or to do it privately or at another time. Um, Whatever makes, you know, the person quite frankly, that's in the bed or in the chair, feel a little bit more empowered and comfortable and having these very difficult discussions. And then we just kind of open it up. Like you said, like, what if, you know, how are you doing? Do you think your health is good, fair, poor? You tell me more about what's going on with your life. Like, what, if, what did your day look like? What did your week look like? What did last month look like? And so you can get a really good picture of, you know, what somebody is capable of doing. Then we can help guide that conversation on, you know, have you considered X, Y, and Z that would make sense to align your life with what matters to you. Being in the home versus being in a nursing facility is very a very prevalent conversation we have with people because I think it's when it's out of sight, it's out of mind. And... A lot of people just don't think that it can happen to them. I love that question about what was life like a month ago. I think that's so important because 
sometimes when you're going through medical treatment, you lose sight of the fact that you had a life outside the hospital or outside of a facility before and, and what that brought to you personally. Um, so I think that's like a really great question for us. I mean, obviously we don't, many times we don't really know our patients until they come in to see us. And so we don't have a perspective of what they look like when they were healthy. Yeah. I wish we could interact with our audience right now. (laughs) (laughs) But if we could ask you, I would ask like, what are some of the barriers, you know, that you have and sitting down with your family or your closest friends and having this conversation? Is it fear? Are we, you know, do we live in a society that just doesn't want to talk about it? Or I don't know, what do you think? I think it's, I think there is fear in the reaction and fear in, you know, if you don't talk about it, maybe it doesn't happen and you don't ever have to think about it. Um, And of course, you know, death has somewhat of a negative connotation, Mm -hmm. even though it can be done well and it can be done peacefully and beautifully, Mm -hmm. where the people who are left, they have their grief, but that grief is soothed by the fact that the process went really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that comes with some degree of planning. Um, it's hard to have a smooth, you know, in, in theater, it would be hard to have a smooth performance if you never practiced, if you, if you didn't know what your lines were, if you didn't know what you were going to do. And of course, as a, as a surgeon, as a healthcare professional um, with a long history behind you, you're, you're trained. Mm-hmm. I'm trained. I'm trained to deal with what's in front of me. I'm trained to make those decisions and I'm trained to know what the options are. But in terms of deciding on your behalf what's best for you when your options are limited, or when we've come to the end of your surgical options and and that's a point where you really need to be able to make that decision for yourself mm-hmm. so yeah i mean we had a situation um another scenario where we had a gentleman who had a surgical injury And he underwent that surgery, and the surgery itself went great. I mean, the bone was treated properly, and there were no issues with that actual surgery. But the surgery... The surgery rendered him unable to swallow. Mm -hmm. And he had actually had experience with not being able to swallow with a whole other medical condition with a throat cancer that he had had a decade ago. So he already had experience with a feeding tube. And this time around he said, I don't want a feeding tube. That's I've had one before. I don't want one again. It was very helpful to have that information, but it also led us down a pathway where 
if you don't want a feeding tube and you don't have a durable way to provide yourself with nutrition or hydration because it's not safe, because you can't swallow, then you're making a choice between knowing that you cannot swallow and trying it anyway versus having an end-stage condition where death will likely occur because you can't provide yourself hydration or nutrition. And so, um, you know, those are the types of issues that we face and it's really not our place to tell you what to do. It's our place to guide you through the decisions that you are ultimately going to make and to explain fully what your options are. And we're doing that and we're complete strangers. It's certainly easier to have that conversation with somebody that you know and you trust who has known you through thick and thin and who would ultimately be your support person during that process, during those decisions, you know, I think that's ideal. I think it's ideal for you to have talked about it with family beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you think about, you know, just general understanding of, like, medical terminology? Because you were so well equipped to deal, you know, with all the questions and concerns that came about with your own family. But I think in general, if you've never studied medicine or you don't even, you know, you never took anatomy or how do you help people navigate healthcare when the literacy or the medical terminology, any understanding of treatment is very limited? Well, it's, it's like anything out there. Um, medicine is the one thing that I understand because I spent so much time studying it. It was, you know, years of college, medical school, a residency, a fellowship, and all in all, it's, it's like 20 years in the making. And then, you know, you come out of that and you go into practice and you're still learning and that's why they call it the practice of medicine because they you know there is a belief that we learn until the day that we stop working Um, and it's like that in most careers I would say that you know you are an expert in your field but you're not necessarily an expert in what isn't your field and you are relying on the experts to explain it With medicine, though, the concepts are um, very complicated. And even reading about, you know, people will Google Mm -hmm. or search their symptoms on the internet, and they'll come in with an idea of what's wrong, which is beautifully helpful in a lot of ways because it gives a roadmap also to how invested they are in their own health care and their own recovery. Um, But the information that's out there is not straightforward. Medicine is complicated. It's a complicated topic. The decision-making, the level of decisions, and then the interventions require skill. And 
sometimes it is hard to break it down when patients or their families don't have any healthcare experience or they've never had anyone sick. You know, we're, we're going through this process for the very first time with a family member and, and they've never gone through it before and, and now they're faced with a whole world of information that's unfamiliar. And that can be difficult too, which is, it takes us back to our earlier conversation, but why I really like to have people explain to me what they understood mm-hmm. because it, it helps put into focus where I need to break the information down for them. Right. What yeah. do you think? I mean, yeah. you see it a lot also, also with like language mm-hmm. and, you know, because English is not everyone's first language. Mm-hmm. language yeah, language, culture. We have, a, we in San Diego have a very diverse culture in an urban setting, so it's really important to understand somebody's culture and what, you know, brings them meaning and trying to also understand their different rituals of what that looks like and be receptive to that. I mean, we have people that, you know, kind of guide care even through end of life and making sure that they have specific people come and visit or, you know, things that are read or chanted or, you know, kind of letting somebody be for eight hours post, um, just being really respectful of what somebody's normal culture is, is really important to us as well. Um, but I think navigating just healthcare literacy in general, I think it's it's hard. And I even like I've looked up symptoms for my children that are having you know some respiratory virus, and it gives you like five different ones, you know, and you're like, which one is it? If you Google it, you don't really understand everything that's that it could be. So I think it's it's good in a sense that you have an idea of what you may be dealing with, and you are prepared a little bit to talk to your provider, but when you, you know, kind of go in blindly or you don't have that background, you, that's why it's so important for us to understand the need to sit with people and have these conversations. I also think it's okay for people to say, I have no idea what's going on. I don't understand it. I don't understand what I've been told. I, I'm lost. I don't know how to make a decision. I don't understand my options. Um, I, I think that's okay because I've been in situations before where I'm the provider and I haven't seen the situation before or it's unfamiliar to me too and we're really going through it together. We're, we're learning about it together and I appreciate when someone says I, I don't really understand what's going on and then, and then we can really dive into that together and and I feel, you know, like I've provided a real service because you you needed that in that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's so many different things that we can offer now. I mean, we're talking about like extraordinarily heroic items like ECMO and, you know, transplants and how come we can do a transplant on one organ but you can't do a transplant on another organ? You know, what does that look like? And it is so complex to navigate situations. So I think in these times it's, like we were talking about before is just sit down with your family and try to get an understanding about what medical terminology you understand and then ask questions yeah I don't know how I wonder how comfortable people feel going to you know like primary care or 
what what really exists out there that you can you know kind of have a thorough conversation yeah um well as you know we've put together a website it's called jay's heart and it's um jaysheart.com and it is a place where there are resources as well as ability to connect with a provider who can help guide you when you feel like you haven't gotten what you need um and of course we're very open to taking your emails and your phone calls there um Thank you for tuning in to our podcast. Please join us again next week. Jaysheart.com. Jaysheart.com.